All right, that's one minute past the hour. So I don't have any announcements other than to say thank you guys for joining. As always, Robert has another lesson for us this evening. And so without further ado, go ahead, Robert. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Today is going to be a little bit different. Um, the prior sessions, I stuck very close to the text. And I think maybe too close. Perhaps some people were irritated. Um, but this week, I kind of want to take a step back and look at a bigger concept because there's a word or a phrase in the text we're going to read today that we hear all the time in popular culture. So I thought we might as well kind of take a break and explore that. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for today is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And it says, Now a certain man a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus replied, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. If I have told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the context of the passage, but I just want to go ahead and kind of get it out there that what I really want to talk about today is the phrase born again. Now you might be thinking, Robert, you didn't even read that phrase in the passage. That's just because of the translation that I am using, the phrase in the passage that I read that says born from above is what most people would refer to as born again. Now, nobody really is getting it wrong. It's just that the word in Greek can be translated as either born from above or born again. Now, clearly here, there's kind of a funny, you know, word game that's going on that we're going to discuss in a minute. But if, I mean, if you have ever been around, you know, kind of the Christian world, surely you've heard the phrase, you know, uh, are you born again? Are you a born again believer or something like that? And that can be a very confusing term, I think. So we should, we should talk about it. Okay. But once, or sorry, before I get to that, let's discuss very briefly what's going on here. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And you might be thinking, what is a Pharisee? Well, the Pharisees, they are 
the most, I will say, kind of committed to the Old Testament, the most devout. Now, of course, you know, if you've read the New Testament, you know, Jesus is always accusing them of being hypocrites. So they're devout in an external sense, not necessarily in an internal and a meaningful way. Okay. But these are the guys that dress the correct way, who say the right things, who, you know, go to church every Saturday in their case, in our case would be go to church every Sunday, you know, um, they give the right amount the, the right amount of money to the temple and even go beyond, they would publicly pray, very publicly pray, so everyone could see how pious they are, okay? And uh, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that if, if you're the real deal, right? The problem that Jesus has with them generally is the hypocrisy here. That is just an appearance. Um, if in a, I'm going to say this, but I'm not comparing Judaism to the new woke movement of today. Okay. But, but you, if you, if you're trying to understand this idea of like these very pious people who, who, you know, do all the right things publicly, just think of the true believers of today who, when it comes to the more progressive stuff, say all the right things, do all the right things, you know, think of that, but, but, um, in a different context, of course. Um, okay, so this is the guy coming to Jesus. He's a religious leader. He's supposed to kind of have it together. And, and, and Nicodemus is not understanding what Jesus is saying to him. And Jesus essentially gets onto him and says, hey, how can you not understand these things that I'm telling you? You should, you're a religious leader. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a contentious conversation that they're having here. Okay. And what is the crux of the conversation? It is this phrase, right? You must be born from above or you must be born again. The, the Greek word can be translated as either, as I said. Now, from the context, it well, to the reader, let me put it this way. To the reader, it's clear that Jesus means born from above because in the Gospel of John, we see this dichotomy, right, between above and below, above meaning from God and below meaning, you know, from man or, or from evil or from the earth, something like that. We see this dichotomy with light and dark, right? Um, sometimes we see this dichotomy with water and spirit. So as the reader, we immediately identify like, oh, okay, from above means from God. Now, to Nicodemus, this was not clear. And he kind of misses it entirely. If we want to come up with a with an English example of how this could happen, think of the phrase liking somebody, how that can be romantic or not romantic. So imagine, right, if um, this is going to be so cheesy, I'm sorry, but imagine if a girl came to me and she was like, hey, I really like you. And I was like, yeah, I really appreciate your friendship as well. And she was like, no, like, I like you, like you. And it'd be like, oh, okay, I completely missed it the first time around. <laughs> and again, I know that's, kind of, that's quite a silly example, but that's what's going on here. Um, okay, so Jesus says, if, if you, uh, well, actually, let me just read it right quick uh, so that I don't paraphrase. He says, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born from above, or born again, right? Whatever you want to say. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So to, to make it into the kingdom, 
you must be born again. What does this mean? Well, um, there are, in my opinion, because I know that there's a comment at the bottom of my post that disagrees with some of this, and, and that's fine. You guys can go read it. Uh, but really, it's a very fine disagreement. I'll explain that in a minute. There, there are two aspects to this idea. And this is really one of the biggest ideas in Christianity, which is why I wanted to kind of take a minute to talk about it. There is one idea that in my blog, I call it forensic, okay? A forensic change. Forensic is something that is judicial, a legal difference. And the forensic language actually gets used in the Bible, particularly by Paul in the later books. So whenever I say this is like a judicial idea or a forensic idea, I'm not superimposing modern ideas, uh, you know, onto the Bible. It, it is certainly in the New Testament, perhaps not in this particular section, but it, certainly it is there later. But at any rate, it is the idea of having the correct standing, the correct status, so to speak, before God. And you might be thinking, well, what, what does that even mean? And to explain that, we need to go back, all the way back to Genesis and, and understand how Christians view humankind, right? Um, in broad terms, God made humankind and they, and, and God said they were good, right? They were very good. Uh, well, his whole creation was very good, I, I, I should say. But then man sins. And when sin comes into the world through man's disobedience, and when I say man, I mean humans, okay? I'm not using it as a gender term. Um, but when man sins, it man now has it is kind of out of alignment with God. Or to put it more bluntly, it's under condemnation from God, right? Because God is perfect and God is loving, but he is also just. So God must punish the unjust, the unrighteous. And the, the Christian idea is that every person, every single person has fallen short. Every person has sinned. Every person has done wrong stuff. And, and I will say, sometimes this gets watered down to like, you know, oh, people have made a mistake here or there. But generally, the Christian view of humankind is actually much more negative than that, is that we are self-centered individuals that um, by, by focusing on ourselves instead of God, really sin quite a lot, uh, okay? And so we have this separation. And how can you be brought into the kingdom of God, right? If, if you have been declared guilty, right? You, you should be thrown out, you should be punished. So the, the first idea is this idea of justification. And justification means that you are declared blameless, okay? And now notice that I'm using the word declared because you don't, um, you don't, become blameless because you did something like theoretically, for example, you could pay for all the wrongs you have done and then you would become blameless. Uh, in, in a, of course, in this context, that wouldn't make sense, but in a, in a traditional judicial context, perhaps that would. Um, but 
you must be declared blameless so that you can be in the presence of God, so that you can be in the kingdom of God. Okay. So that's one idea. And again, that's normally what we call justification. And by we, I really mean pretty much every denomination. If we have an Eastern Orthodox listening today, they may have a little bit of pushback and go, we don't use that. But I'm, I'm going to argue back on that point and say, yes, you do. Uh, but that, that, that's coming up later. Okay. But let's say that we are forgiven of all of our wrongs and we are declared blameless before God. Well, we really still have an additional problem, right? Because if our very nature has not changed, well, heaven is not going to be heaven, right? Like we're all going to make it to the kingdom of God and then be wretched people and do wretched things. So really, we didn't get anywhere. So there has to be an additional thing that happens. And this is what in the blog I call an ontological change. And I'm not just trying to use big words. Uh, I actually think that understanding these philosophical categories is so helpful. So, I, you know, I go ahead and kind of use the, the proper language. But ontology refers to being, to the nature of being. Okay. So the idea is that when we are born again or when we are born from above, there's something that happens to our very nature. And we are turned, you know, instead of, of being focused in inwards, in ourselves, in our, you know, selfish desires, we are turned around and now we are focused on God who is all good, right? Who is the, what in theology is called the sumum bonum, the, the, the greatest good, the maximum good, the one thing that we all ought to be pursuing. And so notice there's a change of status and a change in our substance, a change in who we are. And if, you know, with both, you can see how you can get to an ideal scenario, right? You can get to the kingdom of God, you can get to heaven. Now, I, I want to offer a, a few points of clarification here. And of course, some of this may be discussed during the, you know, the latter half when people ask questions or make comments, and that's fine. But, but I want to preempt a couple of thoughts. When we say that God changes our nature, we don't mean that we just like become perfect on the spot immediately. Uh, first of all, I mean, not only does the Bible not teach that, but that would be clearly false just from observation, right? P people who are Christians, who are legitimate Christians, still do bad things. And by the way, the, the Bible does say that. In fact, the Bible says anybody who claims to be with no sin, to just be perfect, uh, they are, they're lying. Okay. I'm paraphrasing it, right? If people who are very familiar with the Bible will go, hey, you know, that's not literally what I said. No, I'm paraphrasing slightly short to, to keep things very clear and concise. Um, okay. Well, so it's not talking about making people perfect, but but there is a significant change in which we begin to pursue God. Now, because today I stepped away from the text a little bit, and I, I'm talking about these bigger concepts, it's important for me to show that I'm not just saying things that, you know, these concepts are found all over the place in, in pretty much every Christian tradition. So what I did, and I don't know that anybody's going to read this, but in case you're interested, uh, I tried to show that these two concepts of justification and regeneration 
Oh, and the ontological change is called regeneration. I don't know if I mentioned that. But at any rate, these two concepts are present in pretty much, if not every denomination. Um, I posted a statement by the Baptist Faith and Message. That would be the official statement of beliefs of the Southern Baptist. They are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Um, I posted some language from the Book of Concord. That's what the Lutherans believe in, or is part of what they believe in, um, at any rate. Uh, I posted a Catholic resource. I got to apologize on the Catholic one because I didn't actually go to the book of catechisms. I just pulled it off their Catholic encyclopedia, encyclopedia, which is available online. But I'm working here with some time constraints, but it, you know, it's in there. I posted a statement by the Methodist Church, which is the second largest Protestant denomination. And the last one I want to mention very briefly. Uh, the last one is kind of odd. It's a catechetical lecture by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. And this is essentially a, a lecture that was given by, by this guy centuries ago. I, oh my goodness, I didn't post a date, but it's from like, uh, it's early. It's many, many centuries ago. I, I forgot the date. Why did I post that one? Because I was trying to represent the Eastern Orthodox as well. And the Eastern Orthodox don't have like a neat little book of beliefs. Oh, that I can go to and be like, here, they, they say it in their like official statement. Um, but they do believe in what the patriarchs have said, right? And St. Cyril of Jerusalem being one of them. And if you read the text carefully, you'll see that he talks about both remission of sins and being enlightened and empowered, right? The remission of sins would be justification. And the second part about being enlightened and empowered would refer to regeneration. Okay. So... Uh, maybe nobody cares about this, but but I, I really did want to show that these two concepts are pretty much universal. Well, um, <laughs> this is the kind of place where normally I would go, okay, so questions or whatever. But <laughs> the format here is a little bit, it's a little bit different. Um, so I am going to go on, but then I, I expect that, you know, we'll have some interesting discussion today. Because now... I want to jump to the last bit of the passage that we're reading today, because the the question, of course, becomes how how can I get this right? And and that is the question that Nicodemus makes, right? When Jesus says you must be born again, at least that's how Nicodemus understands it. And he goes, how how could I do that, right? I can't enter my mother's womb and be born again. And the the passage we read today ends with a very interesting sentence. It says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, there's a phrase there, Son of Man, that I would love to discuss, but we will have to do that another day. That relates back to the book of Daniel. And it, it's, it's super interesting, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. But notice what Jesus is referencing. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, okay, um, so must the Son of Man, so must Jesus be lifted up. And this is a reference to Numbers 21. I did not, I did not post it in my blog, but if you want to look for it, it is Numbers 21. And in that story, the Israelites have rebelled against God, and so God sends snakes among them okay to punish them to 
some people die. And the, the Israelites repent and they say, please, please, you know, uh, you know, we're sorry, please relent. And what God says to Moses is, and I'm going to have to read this because I don't remember the exact wording. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous snake and set it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. So that if a snake had bitten someone, when he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Okay. It's a bit of an odd scene. I'll, I'll grant that. Um, but I think oftentimes people miss that this idea of putting a snake on a pole is not like this, like, I don't know, beautiful snake statue or something that he's lifting really high. No, the idea is of an impaled snake. So impale a snake on a stick, on a pole, and anybody who wants to be saved, in this case to be saved from the snakes, uh, not in a, in a spiritual sense, must look at it. Okay. And so notice how this connects to Christ. It's really kind of incredible. The idea is that how will I get this new birth? Well, just like in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to look at the snake impaled on a pole. Well, in the New Testament, anybody who wants this new birth, they must look to Christ also, in a sense, impaled on a pole, right? Now, of course, you could say Christ wasn't impaled, he was crucified, but it's the exact same imagery of a, of a dead snake on a pole, and in this case, Christ being dead on a cross. And it is only through that that we can have the new birth. Okay. And again, this is so central to Christianity that, forgive me if I'm, if I'm going a little bit slow here, but I just want to make sure that it's very clear. Now, of course, we could make a further connection going even further back in time to Genesis, right? Because it is a snake, it is a serpent that begins the fall. And then now we kind of have a reversal of the imagery where a snake on a pole and which represents Christ on the cross is what puts an end to that story, to that part of the story where people are reconciled with God and they recover their original nature, the nature they were meant to have, a nature of goodness where they followed uh, God in his goodness and perfection. Um, and Honestly, with that, Matt, if you're okay with it, we could open it up to questions and comments because I, I suspect people will have quite a few. And then if we don't have any, I can certainly uh, talk some more, but it, it just seems weird to me to like just go on into into unrelated topics and, and leave this. Sure. Yeah, I will uh, open the, uh, the chat up to anybody who wishes to ask a question or a point of discussion. Again, just put question in the chat, just the word question. And I will, uh, I'll just bring you in in order because I think we won't have any trouble doing that tonight. And um, from my own perspective, I uh, thank you for the, for the lesson as always, Robert. Um, I don't know that I have a, a question. There are some things that maybe I'll uh, search for some clarity on as people ask questions because maybe they'll ask some things to the themes that are uh, a little curious to me. But uh, I appreciate the lesson, uh, especially in that I've, I've always understood the term born again to be kind of colloquial like just sort of casual and not necessarily a specific not necessarily of specific biblical origin that to me just always implied people who maybe found faith or found jesus later in life they they 
didn't necessarily believe prior. They found their faith later, and so they're born again. I, I didn't know that it was as based in the text as as it is, or that that it comes from that term has biblical significance beyond just someone describing their own experience. Yeah, in fact, um, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I think first of all, the term has has been used for you know, long, long time, even in popular culture, I actually did a Google search and uh, Google, unless I'm doing something wrong, Google can search all the way back to like the beginning of the 1800s, you know, and how, how common a term is. And you see it all the way back to the beginning of the 1800s. So this is not like just something new that evangelicals came up with or something of the sort. But hmm. notice that uh, Nicodemus is in this situation where Nicodemus thinks he's already part of the club because he was born, so to speak, from the right woman, right? He's what I mean by that is he's a Jew. He has to he has the correct DNA. He's the descendant of the right people. So it's like I'm in. And Jesus responds by saying, "No, like just that's not sufficient for you to be an heir of of God. You must be born again." And I think this term has caught on so much in popular culture because as as Christianity became kind of the de facto religion of people, um, I think there was a similar attitude where people thought, well, I am a Christian, I am saved, just because I am a, say, whatever, Anglican, Lutheran, Catholic, whatever. And so people started asking this question, like, uh, are you quote unquote, saved in the way that Nicodemus was saved, like just because you think you're in the, you know, you were born into the right church, or are you born again saved? Like you truly, uh, you know, have the spirit of God in you. Um, and so yeah. th that's what people use that term. Uh, apparently everybody's shy tonight. Oh, there goes Chris. Cause I, I my remaining thoughts have to do with the, the definitions of these terms as in like, maybe people sure. will get to this, so we don't have to answer it now, but I, but at least if I'm following here, we have we kind of have we have God who's perfect, and we have man who's something short, and then you have this third category of born again. And I gather that that is, as you're describing, um, being a part of the faith, but but carrying God's spirit within you as God would intend. Mm -hmm. I understand that's sort of the definition, but what does that mean in practical terms? Like, what is the how would a born again person behave differently from say a generic? degenerate man who is you know not of the born again category that's those are those questions are where my mind is at but we do have people lining up so i'm going to get to those questions okay and um, we can return to that maybe at the end if uh if yeah people don't get there but but chris if you're ready to go uh go ahead yeah thank you and it was a good question you asked matt about uh about how we do that <clears throat> so my question for robert is uh pertaining to verse five when jesus said truly truly i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god so this is going to be a this is going to be a perfect robert question uh because mm. my question is the what's the structure of that sentence in the original greek uh is it is the is there a birth of water and birth of spirit or is it a birth of in parentheses water and the spirit okay this is a uh this is a very good question and I guess you noticed that I kind of avoided that one because here's, let me give some of the context why this question matters and then I will get to your question specifically. Some 
some Christian groups, some denominations would emphasize that baptism is when the born again happens. Okay, so you're, you're born of water and of the spirit, then water meaning baptism. And some denominations would say, uh, no, um, baptism is not strictly tied to this. And I'm glossing over a gazillion you know, nuances there. But in the, in the Greek, really, you can look at this phrase uh, in a couple of different ways. You can look at it as a strict end. So you must be born of the water and the spirit, meaning, yeah, you got to be baptized and you got to and you have to receive the spirit. And then I suppose you could go a step further and believe those two happen at the same time. But you can also look at this phrase as the two words just meaning one thing like and, and there's a there's a grammatical term for this and right now i cannot remember it i actually tried to write it down so i so i would not forget it but say in english we say it's really nice and warm outside that phrase nice and warm doesn't really refer to two things right i could just change it to where i say it's nicely warm outside and nice becomes a, an adjective for warm or an adverb um well so you can look at it that way like those two words are referring to one concept and not two the other wrinkle in this is that at, at least at this point in the story we don't have christian baptism now we do have the baptism of john the baptist which was a baptism of repentance so even if water refers to literal water to a sort of ritual of cleansing it is it could be making the point of repentance so you could read it as repentance in spirit and i would say those are the three options and you can find scholars that will support all three and i was you know um of course i have my opinion on this particular debate uh but does that answer your question or would you like to add anything no i think you did a good job uh you know laying out the positions I, I was curious what the actual um the grammar suggests is it is it one that is it one birth or two ah uh, well and i i studied i actually studied this this sorry throughout the week but and i i don't feel fully confident giving you an answer i mean from what i understand the grammar would lend itself to either two different concepts water and spirit or it could lend itself to one concept, like I said, like my example of being nicely warm outside. Um, and I, that's, I'm at my depth, so I have to leave it at that as far as my knowledge. But it sounds like maybe you you have a take in this, or maybe you know more than I, than I don't. I don't know. No, not really. I, well, I've asked, I've asked this question once before, and, and uh, the, the understanding I have from, from asking it before is it's one birth mm -hmm. yeah so the water and spirit is one thing oh yeah i mean certainly it's one birth i i don't think that anyone would dis would disagree with that it is one birth the question is is that does the birth come from water and spirit or does it just come from the spirit and the water is is qualifying spirit in the sense that it's one idea right so is baptism required or not effectively but everyone would agree that it is one birth it's one event one thing yeah, you answered my question. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Gilgamesh, you're up. If you're ready, go ahead and unmute yeah. yourself. 
Okay, this is perfect because I've been um, the whole thing of like we hear about the born again, like uh, what's her name? The lady, you know, I'll just bring it in. What uh, I can't think of her name, the lady at the center of Ruby Wade. She said she was, you know, that she got baptized and was forgiven for. But the problem with that is, okay, when you when you pass on, you go in front, you go wait in line, you go and say see St. Peter. He goes through your life at the end. He, it's just then he decides where whether you're going to heaven, purgatory, or hell. Isn't that, isn't that true? So even if, like you know, even if you say okay, you know they bapt you go through it and you know you repent your sin of what she did, at in her life that still you carry that till you you know, right? Well, no, no, quite um, okay. The the idea is, it it's actually it's actually kind of the, it's very different to that. The idea is that because of Christ's sacrifice, and we will talk more about this as we go along. And I, I some people must be going crazy that like I'm not go ahead and like kind of throwing everything in the kitchen sink into this conversation. But I'm trying to go in order as far as the Gospel of John goes. But the idea is that Christ is God and is man, and he lives a perfect life. So he meets all of the standards. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes sin on our behalf. So he is punished for everything that we have done and will do. And because Christ paid it all already, our sins are forgiven, but not because of our own righteousness, but because of his righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness. Um, it's what sometimes we call penal substitution, like he paid for our sins, for our punishment. And so, no, I mean, that person, and I don't know specifically who you're talking about, but that person is not carrying her guilt at the very least. She may be carrying her sins in the sense that she's still a sinful person and is doing bad things, but she's not carrying her guilt. That guilt oh. has been done away with through Christ's sacrifice. And that's what okay. justification is referring to. Oh, okay. Because... I was always told that you carry this, then you meet St. Peter at the end. He goes through and then, you know, you carry the sin with you. And then he goes through and depend on what your sin was and what you did. Like, let's say you stole the loaf bread, but you you helped take care of somebody that you you want to balance, balance out yourself so that you don't go to hell. Um, but isn't like murder like the one thing that guarantees even if you repent that murder, I'm not talking about self-defense, like actually killing someone yeah. for your own selfish reasons. That... Forgive, forgive my oh. interruption, but would it be fair to say, like, I guess, is the theme that you're getting at, is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin assuming the faith? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what I'm the, trying to get at. Well, there would only be one which would be rejecting Christ. So it's oh, not, okay. a, it's not, okay. there's nothing you can do so you could, I cannot believe I'm going to say this out loud, but you could go kill a hundred people and can you be forgiven? Yes. Now, this is not to say, by the way, I, I just want to make sure that we don't confuse this on earth. There might still be justice to be done. Like if you killed a bunch of people, you, you may be punished on earth and, and actually be put to death and Christians would not oppose that. I, I just want to make clear that, um, we're talking here of, 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 kind of this ultimate salvation uh, when you face God. Now, yeah. it's actually that you bring up this question because 
the the Christian would say, no, there is no unforgivable sin other other than rejecting Christ. And at the same time, the flip side of that of that coin is there is no righteousness that any one person can bring that could merit salvation. Okay, because God is perfect, so any little blemish on us is sufficient already for for damnation, for condemnation. So, uh, which means that apart from Christ, there's condemnation, and in Christ, there is no condemnation, and it's really that cut and dry. It it really is that simple. Okay. Okay. Now I'm just curious about that because I was thinking, you know, what about if you do something so, you know, you kill somebody not because you were defending yourself or you had no choice, but you wanted to, let's say, kill a kid, you go, you know, and you don't repent, but you go, is that still, can you be forgiven for that, that Mm -hmm. type of evil? Yeah, you can. And now let me throw one other thing in, because I feel like otherwise the conversation, uh, or I, I might lead people to misinterpret things. The Bible does talk about people becoming hardened because of their sin. And so, you know, if you if you go around doing these awful things, um, is salvation available to you? Yes, you can repent, you can turn to God, you can be saved. But it's also quite likely that the more bad things you do, the more you harden your heart and the less likely or the harder it is for you to turn to God. Um, and so I, I also don't want to give the impression that the life you leave, that the life you lead is just completely meaningless. But no, your salvation does not stand or fall on your actions oh okay now i'm just curious about that thanks thanks for the thoughts oh uh, yeah gilgamesh and and as someone who's kind of been on the outside of the concepts of faith like this i can say that i think that that concept is one of the hardest to wrap my mind around as in the idea that the the school shooter who is sorry about it and finds Jesus later is just as entitled to the kingdom of God as the man who lived as close to a morally perfect life as humans are capable of doing. And I think not just does that seem sort of unfair, I suppose, but if men are imperfect, then our application of justice is imperfect. So even if the school shooter gets life imprisonment, put to death, whatever, the idea that there isn't a mechanism of justice for him in the godly sense, assuming he, assuming he adopts the faith, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that as a matter of justice. How that is a just outcome. Yeah. Um, well, I, what I think one thing, and and you know this this might also really kind of not click, but my answer to that would be there there actually justice was done and justice was done on the cross to jesus and so by jesus paying for all of our sins jesus paid for that school shooting the same that he paid for when i told a little lie the other day or whatever you know like the little sins and the big sins and as we get further into the story and particularly the crucifixion the idea is that just like our just like all these sins that we can think about are so gigantic so it so is the sacrifice paid by christ um, so, so that that sin went unpaid for. Okay. Thank you for the, uh, the thoughts on that. Donald, you're up next. If you're uh, ready, go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah. Hey, um, just, this is kind of like a sideways observation of my own. Um, there are 
plenty of passages in the Old Testament that um, have, to me, have plenty of meaning within their context. And then also the dual meaning that many may have is also clear that, oh, yes, okay, it, it foreshadows Christ. Um, but I got to say, man, that snakes on a pole thing, <laughs> in its own context, apart from the New Testament, to me, that is just flat out weird. It's almost primitive. But, you know, after I ask God, why did you make mosquitoes? I'm going to ask him about, okay, what was up with the, apart from foreshadowing Christ, what was up with that snakes on a pole? <laughs> That's all. <awesome. laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm going to refrain from the snakes on a plane reference that's yeah. begging to be made. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll be quiet now. Thanks. Thanks, Donald. <laughs> Did you have uh, additional thoughts on that, Robert? Um, no. I'm Well, I guess one quick thought, which is uh, the New Testament makes clear that the Old Testament all points to Christ. And so there's all these events that in the New Testament, sorry, that in the Old Testament, they just kind of seem to be, I don't know, part of the part of the story. And then the New Testament writers go, you see, that was pointing to Christ. And when the connection is made, it's actually quite beautiful. Um, but they certainly don't seem to make any sense at the time. They make sense later. Uh, but at any rate, okay. sorry, we can we can go on. Jason, you're up next. If you're ready to go, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, sir. <laughs> Go First ahead. of all, I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for doing this. Well, thanks for joining. And uh, I have a, a comment on what you, your question, Matt, about kind of that third category, say people fall into, and then a very uh, quick question for Robert based on something that was said in response to Gilgamesh. Okay. And so first, kind of, and I'll do my best, and people can feel free to correct me. But the idea with the saved is that you're still sinful, but you have the spirit of God in you. So you're going to want to do better. And because you have the spirit of God in you, you're more aware of what you're sinning, of when you sin, of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You'd be as a friend of mine in church says, sinning with your eyes open, so to speak. Mm. Like, let's take the idea of something that a lot of Christians say is immoral, and it's taught in the Bible that's immoral, but that society accepts of sex outside marriage. So like right now, most people don't have an issue with that, your general person. And... So now someone who's saved might still engage in that behavior, but they would have a better understanding that it's wrong and would feel worse about it. If that makes sense, they're still susceptible to that temptation, but they, if they truly are saved, they would not be as readily to engage in it, or maybe it's something they struggle with. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. I think, uh, and and Robert, if if you have more to add to this, go ahead and chime in. But it's it's kind of like a it's like a humbling mechanism, I suppose. It's a realization that that there is a more perfect version of not just you, but a more perfect version of of all of us that that could be achieved, or at least uh, could be pursued through the proper pathways. And if if you don't understand that, then yeah, you you I suppose succumb to that kind of moral relativism where. Eh, you know what? What does it matter if I do this or I do that? It's all the who cares? Um, it's 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 put it puts you off the path toward the more perfect version of yourself, I suppose. Um, and Paul uh, talks about this a lot later. He talks about yeah. the old man versus the new man, yeah. and that. Oh, I forget 
how he puts it exactly, because I'm not great about quoting scripture, but he does talk a lot about always I do what I don't want to do. And yeah, if, if you can recognize yourself as imperfect, it puts you on the path toward correction. And if you, if you can't recognize yourself as imperfect, well, there's no improvement ever to be made. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you'll still have stumbling blocks. The idea is you'll yeah. still need God's strength and grace to help you overcome them. You'll still be susceptible to temptation. It's just, you'll have that drive to want to not live that life more is kind of the idea. Yeah. And uh, then regarding what um, Gilgamesh said, and also kind of the whole, well, like the school shooters and things, I'm understanding when it talks about later, there's this idea that if you're saved in heaven, you won't be judged versus are you going to heaven or hell, but your good works will be judged. And it talks about how they're not found worthy, they'll burn up. But if you've done a lot of good works as far as helping people get saved, like true Christian good works done in the right spirit, it's almost, it talks about that you're getting crowns. Like there's almost different levels of heaven, if that makes sense, different rewards. So while, and some people in the comments are talking about the waivers that the guy who comes in at the end of the day to work gets the same wages. They might not necessarily have the same reward as the saved person who, as you put it, is doing the best he can and really puts effort to living right. He might enjoy a type of better heaven, I guess. It just, hmm. It's it's kind of open for discussion because it just refers to that if your works are found inferior, they'll just burn away, but that some will be given many crowns. So there, there is school shooter heaven. It's like a lower level. Is that, is that, well, is that true? Uh, let me try it just... It's not like the VIP. It's not the VIP. Excuse oh. me. Sorry, now that I'm butchering this. No. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say quick that the best thing I ever heard, I guess, that put in perspective to me is, is in a sermon hearing once, I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised by who isn't there that we thought would be and who is there mm. that we never would have thought would have made it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's very true. And I, I just want to respond briefly. I, I don't know if we should use, uh, and I know that Jason was was being funny, like different levels of heaven, you know, that's not quite the, the question view, but he's, he's absolutely correct that the New Testament does speak in a way that our true, our good works um, will be. There is a recognition for them now. What exactly that looks like is really not spelled out. There's just kind of these euphemisms or metaphors or whatever, but um, it doesn't quite say how. But certainly, he is correct that there is some recognition um, for for those good works. Um, and another thing I'd like to add, just to just to make sure I'm clear, when I say good works, um, again, the, the the traditional Christian belief is that good works are not what saves you, right? It is Christ. It is it is placing your faith in Christ, um, and then Christ, you know, atonement being applied to you. But the, also the Christian teaching is that if you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you're born again, whatever language we want to use, that good works will follow like good fruit you know you are now you're now a, a different person you're now like a good tree and so you're gonna uh have good fruit and if you don't if nothing good comes from your salvation then well you're probably not in christ you're probably not a christian like that's just kind of the ugly truth of it 
Thank you for the thoughts, Jason. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, Brian, you're up next if you would like to chime in. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Give him a moment. I think Brian is our last you requester. Another, another Brian. Uh, yeah, sorry. I meant I meant you, uh, Brian Irvin. Okay, yep. um, and I will say, I think Brian is the last I have on the list. So if there's anybody... Oh, and Daniel has chimed in as well. But we might have time for maybe one or two more uh, afterwards. So if you still have a thought on your mind, go ahead and just write question in the chat and I'll see if I can get to you. But uh, go ahead, Brian. This isn't really, this isn't a question. It's more of a comment. And I sure. apologize if this is redundant because I, I said it in the comments, but there's a lot of comments going around. I think it's, I think it's important to define our terms and faith is one of those terms that kind of gets thrown around and we all assume each other knows, we all know what we're talking about but there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. I mean, if we re if we pay attention to how the word faith is used in the Bible, it is not as is commonly thought, believing the right things about God and Jesus. It, hmm. it, it includes that, but it's, it's not necessarily that. Faith is a matter of where you believe your best interests lie. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man sold everything he had and bought that field. It's a matter of investment. If you if your faith is in Christ, you believe that your best interest lies in following him and doing what he says. Hmm. Uh, by definition, that means sin is contrary to that. All all evil, all sin is a question of misplaced faith or a failure of faith. So like all all this discussion about, you know, if you believe in Jesus, can you commit X, Y and Z sins or sin to, to nth degree? Um, well, no, those things are mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean you'll be you'll be sinlessly perfect, but you're in general, you're going to recognize that there are greater rewards in following him than in defying him. You're not you're not looking to see what you can get away with and still go to heaven. And um but anyway, I, d I just thought that was worth pointing out. And uh... yeah, that that helps me understand it a little bit better. I like the way you phrased that about how understanding that following him is in your best interest. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, I suppose, have a perfect understanding of everything all the time. It just means that you recognize that this that this path in general is the path to prosperity, and that you you should not stray from it. I suppose. Right. Um, yeah. And there's a whole ethical philosophy that that unfolds if you tug on that string and it's it's contrary it's 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 counterintuitive because we we tend to think it, it's very ayn randian really i mean i think ayn rand's morality was the most christian available ironically because she hated christianity but it was a it was a phony version of it that she was responding to though hmm. um but uh at the risk of sounding pompous and self-promoting, I have a blog where I explain all of this. I don't make money off of it, so it's sure, not, yeah. not necessarily self-promoting. It's just, it's it's for free. But anyway, it's in my comment on on Robert's blog if anybody is interested. But uh, the latest entry discusses this idea of faith and morality more. If anybody's interested, but all right, cool. That's all I got. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks for yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the thoughts. And uh, and if people, as Brian mentioned, if you would like to read more about his thoughts on this topic, he does have a comment on the uh, on the blog post where that information is linked. Uh, thank you, Brian. Yeah. Let's see. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add, Robert? No, I think that was an excellent comment. 
because yeah, sometimes the idea of faith is misunderstood. Sadly, nowadays, I think the most common understanding of faith is to believe something without proof. You know, it's like you, you don't really have good reasons to believe something. It's like, oh, just have faith. That's Um, kind of how I understood it to be. And I think that's where I struggle a lot with these concepts and the way he phrased that, I think, um, I, I find that to be interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll put some more thought to that because it's not, it's not proof in the sense of like, you know, show me the evidence, like this is a criminal case or something like that. It's, it's more of an understanding that this is, this is a path. It's the way you put it. This is a path that's in your best interest. And it's just understanding that, but even that, um, it has evidence in the observable outcomes. If (laughs) the observable outcomes are productive, not just for your life here on this planet, but you know, if all, if all of the, text that we're reading and all the things we're thinking about are true, that, that it has benefit beyond this world as well, then the evidence is almost, I mean, it's in the past because we can look back at, at how people have lived according to this philosophy, but the evidence for you personally is in your future. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in future results if you choose to follow this path uh, correctly, I suppose. Yeah. I- uh, yeah, I mean, I I largely agree with that, and and you know, this idea of faith is the idea of trusting, or if we want to use a different word, relying. Like, I when I place my faith in God, right? It again, it has nothing to do with this idea of I just choose to believe something I have no reason to believe. And it's actually mm-hmm. quite the opposite. It, it is to say, I have good reasons to believe that God is true. And when I say true, I don't mean that God exists. I mean that God is who he says he is he's true he's honest so to speak right like his promises he will keep his character will not change and so forth okay so the this i this christian idea of faith is i have good reason to believe that god is who he says he is and that christ did what he said he did and i choose to rely on that that's where i'm kind of placing all my chips it's 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 Christ or nothing because if Christ fails me, then I then I'm I'm holding nothing. You know, I kind of lost it all. Um, that's the idea of faith of of relying on what we have good reason to believe in. Hmm. Okay, Daniel, thanks for your patience. You're good to go if you're ready. Daniel, let him hang out a minute. Okay. Um, Let's see. I think Daniel is the last request for comment tonight. Daniel, if you are speaking, I can't hear you, by the way. So um, you might have a mic problem or something like that. Oh, okay. uh, sorry. Oh, there we go. Yeah, now <laughs> you have it. I couldn't get back to Zoom. I was trying to look something up. Got it. Uh, I was, I was, um, I just, uh, I didn't hear what you guys were saying because I was looking something up. Oh, we, but, uh, we were talking about the definition of faith because that's what Brian had brought up. And I found his, oh, right, right. his explanation of the term to be interesting. So we we're going back and forth on that a little bit. Yeah. So the thing I was trying to look up was um, it's something C.S. Lewis said, and I think it was in Mere Christianity, but I couldn't quite remember. Um, but it, it was because, you know, related to the topic of um, this idea of uh, the, the forgiveness of egregious sins you guys are talking about, you know, mm-hmm. school shooters and all that kind of thing. And uh, I, I thought, you know, Lewis put it in an interesting way um, because, you know, he kind of makes the comparison somewhere where uh, when it comes to the Christian perspective, he notes that Christians take um, 
sins of the soul, as it were, really seriously, you know, um, pride being one of the obvious examples. And we're talking about kind of, uh, you know, not not proud pride is in just, you know, being satisfied with your accomplishments or something like that. But uh, uh, the kind of pride that, you know, puts you at at enmity with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so uh, Lewis was talking about how, you know, originally he was kind of confused at how Christians seem to take that more seriously than um, physical acts of of sin in some respects. Not that they don't take them seriously, but um, that they view those as uh, being more serious in a way. And um, uh, you know, and it one leads to the other. If you if there's something wrong inside you, that that produces um, wrong actions. Um, and he also notes that uh, it makes sense in a way because Christians don't view people as mere mortals. They view them as, you know, eternal beings. And when you orient yourself wrongly, when you, when you uh, point yourself in the direction of um, wrongdoing, wrong thinking, um, you know, having the wrong state of, of the heart, um, you know, this, this endangers your soul in a very long-term sense, uh, you know, from an, a, from an eternal perspective. Um, and so mm-hmm. this is why, you know, if you're looking at somebody who's done something wrong, even has murdered people, um, chances are good that person's not going to change. But if that, if that person does change, and, and like Robert said, you may, you, you may still encounter the just uh, physical consequences like, you know, uh, capital punishment, but from an eternal perspective, you can still, uh, you, you can still be oriented in the direction of, of uh, righteousness, so to speak. I don't know if I explained that all that well, but that's why I was trying to find the Lewis quote, because he put it a good deal more eloquently than I could. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you have thoughts on that, Robert? No, uh, I mean, I think it's a beautiful thought. Um, C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. I've read every book he's written. So pretty much anybody who quotes C.S. Lewis, I'm like, yep, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a theme tonight, I think, both in Brian's commentary and some of your additions and what, what um, Daniel was saying. It, it's even though there are horrific and egregious crimes, as we've discussed, what we're really talking about here is more an issue of of broad trajectory as opposed to even heinous instance. And there are, you can commit a series of heinous instances. You can be a career criminal and your trajectory can still be wildly evil. But I think um, maybe when we try to, when I, as I try to wrap my mind around those concepts of justice that we started with, where how can you commit such terrible things and still be eligible for the kingdom of God? I mean, maybe it's, um, I suppose maybe it's just it's it's an improper perspective on on how I don't know how how large in scale or how broad this trajectory is as opposed to the single instance. I don't know if I'm making sense. These are difficult yeah. concepts yeah. for me to think about, but it it seems yeah. that when people are trying to explain this to me, they're talking about longer term concepts than the single instance even if the single instance is horrific. Yeah. No, uh, I I agree with you. I think that these concepts don't make sense unless we bring in the idea of eternity. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, it, well, 
in, in Christianity, since we are eternal, just like we were discussing, like that person who was murdered, you know, can make it into the kingdom of heaven and be happy forever after. So the, the murder, it was incredibly wrong. I'm by no means justifying it or make, or, you know, like making it seem less than it is, but God can actually set that situation right and bring that, that victim into eternity. Right. Hmm. Um, and, and then the, you know, so what, what I'm getting at is that, without eternity it would seem really wrong like how can we ever set this right uh but when you bring in eternity uh you you can actually kind of fix this situation so to speak and on the other hand just like you said like these are trajectories that will bring you uh into very different locations given enough time right like just somebody with just a sin of pride uh who let's say it's like five degrees of course the course being the way of god well, if you go five degrees off, but you go a million miles, you are yeah. you end up in a completely different location. So, yeah. But at any rate, I think we we discussed it already. Yeah, I I appreciate the uh, everybody's contributions tonight as usual. Some of these concepts, as I mentioned, um, they are they're brand new to me, and so it's 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 difficult for me to wrap my mind around them sometimes. Sometimes, and I appreciate you guys helping me understand them. So. Uh, we don't have any more requests for question or comment, so we will leave it there. Did you have uh, anything you wanted to add before we call it an evening? Uh, no, I think that's good. All right, well, thanks uh, for joining everybody, and uh, hope you have a great weekend, and we will catch you back here next Saturday evening as usual. Have a great night.